Why, hello there, Danielle E. Gaines, senior reporter for the Frederick News Post, all the way in Annapolis, Maryland. How are you this afternoon? Hi, Colin. I'm good. How are you? Oh, I'm never any good. We all know that. We all know that. Uh, how's the weather there? It's cold here. It's cold. And there was a midday press conference that I covered, and that seems to be the only time of day when it snowed outside. So that was fun. <laughs> I'm sensing some sarcasm in that. Uh, so let's, speaking of today, what a great segue. What a great segue. Let's dive right in. Uh, congressional redistricting reform. Uh, as you as you wrote me earlier, it's the big issue in the state house today. There were multiple press conferences. Can you give us the latest up to date news where we are with some of this stuff? Yeah. So there are bill hearings ongoing right now as we speak that are looking at a number of bills that have been proposed that would change the way that Maryland handles congressional redistricting. There's a bill from the administration from Governor Hogan, and there are some other kind of competing measures um, introduced by uh, members of the General Assembly. And they're all kind of getting their hearings all together today in one set um, Kind of in that's one where go. you should so that's where you should be right now instead of talking to me right <laughs> well I have a whole system I'm recording so I'll be able to get caught up okay I'm sorry to interrupt <laughs> you go ahead so uh, you know the governor held a press conference this morning to talk about his proposal and why he hopes that it will go forward this year the midday press conference was by another group of supporters of redistricting reform they were supporting the governor's bill but also highlighting a number of other bills that are under consideration this year and just kind of pushing for the general assembly to take action this is kind of a critical year for the general assembly to take action because it's the year before we would elect a new governor in 2018 and um the Congressional lines are drawn with the um, with the censuses every 10 years. So you really want to get something in place now, elect a new governor, and then elect or reelect a governor, and then um, have something in place for that 2020 process. Can you give us a, a sort of, with, with all these bills, is, is there sort of a short cliff notes version of some of these that that you can share with us like uh, for the governor uh, for as an example or are there any that that can be boiled down yeah so i would say there are two prominent proposals there's the governor's proposal um, which was created by a nonpartisan commission that he formed that held hearings throughout the state and made a recommendation on how to change the redistricting process and um, that group did include um, Republicans and Democrats. Some of the Democrats who are members of the committee of that commission have um, had qualms with some of the things that the commission did. Um, but it is a bill that recommends nonpartisan redistricting, and it um, has kind of two prongs. It first looks at um, you know who would draw the congressional district lines. And that would be not politicians. That would be individuals who don't have, um, you know, mm -hmm. a super vested interest in how things go. So no lobbyists, politicians. There would be an application process through the state and members would be appointed to do this process. It would take place, you know, transparently. And then mm -hmm. the other part of that is how they would redraw the lines. So mm -hmm. the bill looks at a couple of things that would make this proposal one of the strongest in the country. One of them is um, that it would have a very low 
um, deviation between the number of individuals from one district to another. So all of the districts would be nearly equal in population. They couldn't deviate between more than 2%. So that basically hmm. says, you know, if there's this many people in this district, there's essentially that many people in the next district. Um, our deviation is much higher right now, sometimes um, almost 10%. That and, seems like quite the um, task. It, that it, seems like it's that would be a hard. hard thing to do. Yeah, It's very hard, but uh, it does a couple of other things that uh, might make it easier. Um, you know, the um, commission would be blinded as to the voting history of the communities that they were looking to draw lines around. They would be blinded to the registration um, politically of the people who live in those districts. And they would be blinded to where incumbents live in the state and that is one of the things that would make it very strong you wouldn't be saying like oh we can't draw this line around this block because you know senator such and such lives there and they've been a member of the general assembly forever you know the commission would just be looking at what's a neighborhood what's a community of interest what is compact what is a straight line and they would be drawing their districts in that way um when you say uh, i'm sorry Go ahead. When you say when you say blinding or, or they're going to be blinded, is is that a foolproof method? Because like people could essentially go back. I'm, ass I'm assuming the people involved in doing this would, would know some type of history, right? Oh, no? I'm certain. But, um, you know, one of the things that they were talking about was that the for the last you know several decades as the congressional maps have been redrawn each one is worse than the last in the opinion of the governor and some mm. of the people who were testifying on his behalf and one of the reasons that that's the case is because what have we seen in the last few decades we've seen big data so you can look and you can find out all this new information and you can see how to you know sliver off some you know democrats from the eighth congressional district and put them into the sixth and make that a more competitive district and you can figure yeah. out you know how to very nuance uh, make very nuanced movements of a thousand people here a thousand people there that could just completely change the political makeup of a district and one of the things they were talking about is so important for 2020 is that the technology that will be available to whoever's drawing the districts in 2020 is going to be yeah. way, way more refined yeah. than what we used in 2010. And the newest, mm -hmm. you know, mapping um, programs apparently can even draw lines around individual buildings. So you could oh, take out scary. a particular apartment complex out of a district and move it into another. Um, this would be a concern, I think, for anybody who's supporting any redistricting reform in the state. Um, mm. And then you wanted yeah. to know one of, I'll tell you about one of the competing bills. Um, this would create like a mid-Atlantic redistricting group, <laughs> I guess. Okay. <laughs> um, so this bill would um, have Maryland join a group of mid-Atlantic states, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Virginia, North Carolina, and together all of those states would pass redistricting legislation that would move that to a nonpartisan basis. And when they pass, when all of the, when all of those states decided to move forward with a nonpartisan redistricting process, it would take effect. And so the goal so of that is because, you know, most Democrats in Annapolis will tell you that Maryland is one of, you know, 
few instances where a state might be gerrymandered in favor of the Democratic Party. It happens mm-hmm. more frequently in in states where Republicans hold a majority because um, of gerrymandering. So this would kind of take and have a whole group of states move together instead of Maryland being on the front of this and, you know, mm-hmm. most likely losing a Democratic seat in Congress. So Republicans, by and large, and just correct me if I'm wrong, and then we'll move off this. I don't uh, we, we obviously have to keep going. You have to you have work to do. But um, <laughs> uh, so Republicans, by and large, elsewhere have been accused of gerrymandering um, more than Democrats. Yet we have a, a, a Republican governor right now who is trying to level the playing field when it comes to gerrymandering. Do I have that correct? Yeah. In this state, at least. Certainly. OK. Hmm. That's interesting. Governor okay. Hogan has, has said multiple times today, and his people have said multiple times today, um, when they've been pressed for whether or not he supports a national solution or a bill in Congress or any of these other things, that his job, his mandate, is to look at changing Maryland, and he wants to change Maryland. He wants to you know, look at Maryland's map and have us lead the way. Um, there are mm-hmm. some Democrats who would rather be you know, in the middle of a pack somewhere instead of being out front. Hmm. Okay, well, speaking of the governor, uh, the governor (laughs) is really loved from what uh, you wrote this week. Um, The headline poll shows Governor Hogan maintains broad support. Uh, 65% of registered voters approve of Hogan's job so far, including 52% of Democrats. I want to I want to touch on this quote that you had. Uh, I'm I'm not even going to try to pronounce the name. The director of the Sarah T. Hughes Field Politics Center at Goucher College. Malia Cromer. She's been on this podcast before. (laughs) Aha. Well, hello, Malia. I hope you're still listening. (laughs) I hope you were ever listening in the first place. Um, Although there have been direct efforts to attach Governor Hogan to President Trump and the majority of Maryland voters say that their views toward President Trump will influence their vote in 2018. The governor remains largely unaffected by national politics. My only question to you is, is there any way you can speculate on why that is? How how has he maintained this sort of distance from President Trump, who has such a, to speculate. a oh, negative um, reputation um, in Democratic circles? <laughs> I think you also cut out there for a second, so I'm sorry if I cut oh. over you. But um, I can't... I can't speculate. I mean, um, the, the so a majority of state residents in this poll also said, 57% of them, that they're leaning towards definitely or likely voting for, um, they're definitely planning to or leaning towards voting to reelect the governor in 2018. So mm-hmm. um, they, you know, maybe people aren't in favor of business as usual. Maybe there haven't been Democratic potential governor candidates who have risen up to the level that um, there's enough excitement for them, for Democratic voters to, you know, voice support for them over what's happening now, which they seem to just kind of be okay with. Um, Mm -hmm. There will probably, you know, once some Democratic candidates come out and publicly declare and start campaigning, I think that you might see those numbers start to change. That's what I would expect in a state with, you know, such an overwhelming number of Democrats. Um, If you're just asking, you know, would you vote for Larry Hogan or some other Democrat? Like, that's a much different question than would you vote for Larry Hogan or, Mm -hmm. I don't know, you know, somebody else. Or Colin. Tom Perez, I don't know. Uh, yeah. 
Huh. I, you know, he obviously things are turning toward uh, the 2018 election now. I, I would assume that he's is is he looking ahead? Is there a sentiment that that he feels like he's got to get a lot done now this year because because that's coming up? Or do you think he's pretty confident going into sort of a reelection bid? Is that even talked about in Annapolis? Well, earlier this session, there was, you know, uh, at the beginning of session, there is a Democratic Party luncheon and a Republican Party luncheon. And what everyone told me about the Republican Party luncheon was that, um, you know, all of the talk was about not focusing on campaign politics, not focusing on partisan politics and just getting some stuff passed, getting things done. This was Mm -hmm. right after the November elections where Republicans really had a great year. And I think, um, you know, the party here in Annapolis, despite being, you know, quite far in the minority, um, is trying to focus on passing legislation or amending legislation that's going to pass. Hmm. Uh, This week, uh, there were, in your words, it was seriously busy with bills and other actions. Uh, (laughs) I want to, I want to get to those right now. Of course, one of them was unfortunately not Bill Green. Thank you very much. Uh, There was something that happened this morning. Um, Delegate Dan Morheim, Morheim, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Morheim was reprimanded reprimanded by colleagues. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Certainly. So Delegate Morheim is from Baltimore County, and we usually tend to focus this show on Frederick County. But um, given what happened this morning, it's um, not something that you would be able to um, ignore. Delegate Morheim was um, reprimanded on the floor of the House of Delegates this morning following a report from the Joint uh, Legislative Ethics Committee. And yeah, that committee... Go ahead. I'd, oh, no, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, I read this story. The story, uh, I read a story from the Washington Post um, that I think, or I think you're going to reference here, but... The, the lead, it says he improperly advocated for changes to medical marijuana policies without publicly disclosing that he was a paid consultant to a prospective cannabis dispensary. I, my, the first thing in my head was, wow, that's not good. And it's well, not a good day. So the issue is, um, you know, the, the committee did find that he didn't violate disclosure laws or intentionally use um, his job for financial benefit. But it did conclude that, you know, what he had done was improper and it violated the spirit of the ethics law. So the committee, mm-hmm. um, you know, recommended that they, the House of Delegates pass a resolution disapproving of his actions and um, urged, you know, Delegate Morheim to apologize. So. Um, today, when the House of Delegates and when the Senate came into session, there was um, two documents on their desk. There was the um, Ethics Committee's report and a letter from Morheim himself. And um, it was just a kind of somber day. This doesn't happen very often that somebody's reprimanded on the floor. The last time it did happen was in 2012. It's got to be uncomfortable, and that was in the I think. Yeah. It, I, oh, it's certainly, it's very uncomfortable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, paid sick leave was something that was discussed on Wednesday, uh, the, and, and according to the Associated Press. And today. Uh, the, and to, well, that, that's what I was getting to. Yeah. The Democrat-controlled Democrat controlled House could pass the legislation as early as today. I'm assuming you have an update on this. Would you like <laughs> to take it from there? Yes. <laughs> so the House of Delegates did vote on a paid sick leave bill today, and it was indeed passed. Um, it was passed, actually, uh-huh. with a veto-proof majority. 
Um, the House of Delegates also passed the legislation last year. It got held up in the Senate last year. We're pretty early in session, and the Senate's also been working on versions of a bill. So it seems like there's a greater chance that um, this might make it through both chambers this year, but it's kind of a wait and see at this moment. And in, in the House of Delegates, um, the vote for the Frederick County delegation was along um, partisan lines. So the Democratic delegates, Karen Lewis Young and Carol Krim, supported the measure, while the Republican delegates, um, Kathy Avzali, Barry Silverti, William Folden, and David Vogt, voted against it. And this is this is the measure that requires businesses with more than 15 employees to provide earned paid sick leave, while businesses with 14 or fewer employees would have to provide unpaid sick leave. Is this correct? correct? So you can okay. earn the opportunity to call in sick um, no matter the size mm-hmm. of a business. But there is consideration for, you know, businesses with 15 or fewer employees. Now, the governor, uh, I believe, was trying to advance something that dealt with uh, the the threshold being 50 employees. That's a pretty big gap. Yeah. And and what you really would hear from Democrats during the debate on this is that they didn't many there weren't statistics available. And many Democrats would say that they didn't believe there were many businesses with 50 or more employees that weren't already applying, um, you know, paid sick leave policies to their workers. And so they weren't quite sure how much of an impact Governor Hogan's bill would have, whereas um, they felt that having policies that would apply to all businesses in the state would go farther to, um, you know, improving health care outcomes and um, just making sure, you know, people aren't coming into work sick and um, Mm -hmm. that they're able to take care of themselves. Take a sick day, people. Take a sick day. There should be a national sick day. If you get them. (laughs) This is not (laughs) final uh, passage yet. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. Uh, earlier this week as well, somebody who we talked about earlier this session was um, one Mr. Delegate David Vote. Is that how you say his name? Yes. How you pronounce yeah. his name? Okay, Vote. Uh, and he he's had a he's had a an interesting time this year um, when it comes to the General Assembly. I'm I'm curious about this this story. Uh, the cost of identity protection protection services is a small price for Maryland to pay to protect the future of students whose personal information is stolen. Now, I didn't even know students were having their personal information stolen, and apparently this happened, correct? Oh, yeah, Colin. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. got to catch up <laughs> on the newspaper, buddy. I know. I know. Um, well, it's not like I work at a newspaper. <laughs> yes. So uh, late last year, it became known that at some point in time, um, the, the personal identification, uh, the personal information from a thousand, at least a thousand former Frederick County school students was stolen and it was for sale on the internet. Um, and wow. the there's been a back and forth between the school system and the State Board of Education about where the data breach occurred and who should be held responsible. Um, but so Delegate Vote has introduced a bill that kind of skirts that line. So what it does is it just says, if the personal information of any s- public school student in the state um, is stolen from a public school or a local school system's computer network or, you know, anything along those lines that the state would step in and provide credit monitoring identity protection services for those students. So it doesn't really get into where blame should fall or, you know, who's Mm -hmm. responsible. Um, It just really says 
when this happens, the state needs to look out for these kids who haven't yet even graduated college or graduated high school and do what they can to um, protect them in the future. This seems to be a logical way to go. I would think. Do, are there people pushing back against this, I would ask? No, this was this was a very short bill hearing. There was nobody um, who spoke in opposition to it. There was also, um, it, it happened kind of later in the evening, um, so there weren't any witnesses who were there um, in person, but there were some letters of support that he submitted along with his bill. It hasn't been voted on by the committee yet. When do you think that'll see a vote? A vote oh, it a just vote. depends. Get it? <laughs> 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 um, it just depends. That was heard by the House Ways and Means Committee, and um, I'm not quite sure what their schedule is right now. Uh-huh. Okay, and then finally, along those same lines, uh, returning to a story we've talked about a bit over over the course of this podcast, uh, student voting rights. And uh, from what I understand, a Montgomery County uh, student uh, came and testified for a bill that would... Um, grant limited voting rights to Frederick County's student member. Can you talk a little bit about this? Yeah, so what was interesting about this um, student member voting rights bill um, over the previous one, which happened in the Senate, that, that was done by Senator Ron Young, um, his you know bill got scheduled for a hearing on, on a day that the school board was meeting, so there <laughs> were mm-hmm. no, uh, no one else to testify at his hearing. But what was interesting is that the cross-filed bill in the House was presented by Delegate Karen Lewis-Young um, last week, and in this case, um, it was interesting because the voices that the committee heard were the voices of students. So mm-hmm. it was, you know, the current student member from the Montgomery County Board of Education. It was the current student member from the Frederick County Board of Education. And it was the past student member from the Frederick County Board of Education. And they are the ones who did most of the talking during this bill presentation. And they're the, one who's the ones who uh, fielded most of the questions from the committee. So the committee is going to have a hard time dealing with this local courtesy issue that we've talked about before. This is a bill that was voted down by a majority of our delegation. But the students made very compelling arguments so it would be interesting to see where it goes i'm glad you said that i'm glad you said students made very compelling arguments i remember on this very podcast uh i said to you i made some sort of an aside that said something along the lines of oh i don't think we want to have students voting on whether or not we should be paying taxes or some i don't know i said something ridiculous that probably didn't make any sense but there was Part of uh, the story this week, and a quote that you have came from, I'm not quite sure how you pronounce the last name. Uh, Mr. Gersey. Gersey. Gersey? Okay. Yeah. Quote, Eric frankly, from Gersey. the- He's a, Eric He's a student. I think he goes to Bethesda Chevy Chase High School. He's from Montgomery County. He's on their board. Yeah, he's, he's currently, right? He's currently yes. on the board. Okay. Quote, frankly, from the perspective of a student from Montgomery County, this bill is overly conservative and fails to empower the student body with the rights it deserves. But sometimes progress arrives in small steps. So that kind of that was a compelling quote to me. I thought, huh, okay. So these these student members really, really think this is a valuable, uh, a valuable source and a valuable learning platform for them to to be. Uh, to have these opportunities, I would, I would imagine. Sure, and, and the point that Eric was making when he was saying that, you know, under the proposed bill, the Frederick County student member can't vote on a whole host of things. 
They can't vote on anything mm-hmm. that's judicial or quasi-judicial, budget expenditures, school boundary changes, board officer elections, personnel matters, contracts, collective bargaining, the school calendar. And there are other things on top of that that really leaves the Frederick County student member with being able to do things like vote on approval of the minutes or the agendas mm-hmm. or items that are already um, you know, on the consent calendar. Um, mm-hmm. And so Mr. Gersey was making that point because in Montgomery County, his middle school principal had that those limited voting rights, actually more limited voting rights than that, back in 1989 when she was a student member of the Montgomery County Board of Ed. So he now, this year, he's a two-term student member um, in Montgomery County, so he's starting his, or he's in the middle of his second year now. He has almost complete voting rights. He has almost the exact (laughs) same standing as the rest of the members of that board. There are some limitations. um, But when you look at, you know, the voting rights that he has versus the very limited set that they're considering in Frederick County, he just didn't think um, that it was, should amount to much of a a debate, (laughs) I guess. Um, he obviously yeah, has a perspective. Yeah. I, yeah, I guess the, the lesson here is I should never talk. Colin needs to shut up all the time. That's because I, I don't know these things. I don't know these things until I read your stories, which by the way, I'm we should also say you. <laughs> here, you are here to teach indeed, which leads us of course, to my favorite part of the newspaper every week. Ladies and gentlemen, go to fredericknewspost.com. Go read Danielle E. Gaines's political notes column every week i say this and this week published today in fact according to our website 16 hours ago if you're listening if you're counting um it's not often you hear the president of the maryland senate grilling an acting cabinet secretary on fashion choices but that's just what happened on monday night quote if i come in with a pair of loafers and no socks on what happens to me thomas v mike miller asked maryland's acting planning secretary wendy peters uh, during a meeting of the Senate Executive Nominations Committee. And I guess it, it, things got terse when he said immediately, it's contrary to your dress code, what happens to me? Uh, wow, it sounds contentious. Can you tell us about it? <laughs> <laughs> sure. So this actually came near the end of this uh, meeting, but um, it, it was very interesting to see the Senate president um, immersing himself so deeply into the details of some complaints um, you know, at a at a department where the um, secretary was up for nomination by the governor. So Wendy Peters, as you know, is a former Mount Airy town councilwoman. She served on the Mount Airy Planning Commission and the zoning board. She worked as the town's zoning administrator. She's been um, a deputy secretary of the Maryland Department of Planning. And when the secretary left last summer, she was recommended by Governor Hogan as the new um, planning secretary. It's a cabinet level position. And so she has to go through the hearing process in the Senate. And that uh, started on Monday night. And, um, you know, this issue with a dress code came up. There were also issues that came up about, you know, a cubicle cleanliness policy and, you know, the morale level of employees at the Department of Planning. And um, there were just a lot of hard questions that she faced during a relatively short hearing, maybe about a half an hour. What was his issue with her? Well, it it was clear, uh, and I I wrote in political notes, it was very clear that some of the um, employees and or potentially past employees in the planning department had um, come to a number of senators with some dirty laundry. 
Mm-hmm. Um, talking about just morale issues in the department, um, leadership issues within the department, um, new policies like the cubicle thing, like the dress code thing, both of which um, uh, Acting Secretary Peters said were in place before she took her position. Um, there were also there was also an issue that she had um, an old campaign website still live from when she ran for state delegate in 2014. And um, it's it's not new for you know the Republican governor's cabinet um, appointees to face a lot of questions with the Senate Executive Nominations Committee. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess it was her turn her turnaround. Um, she did find some yeah. support from at least one Democrat during the committee hearing, I will say, and there were letters of support submitted on her behalf. Well, that's that's nice. I guess all's well that ends well, huh? Well, 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 the um, committee put forward their most recent nomination recommendations, and um, she was not included on that list. It's unclear, you know, when they might take up a vote um, and include hmm. her in a recommendation to the broader chamber, which will then um, discuss the issue. I wouldn't be surprised when you get these big packets of nominees um, sent to the Senate floor. It's not uncommon for people to ask to pull out one nominee or another for further discussion, and I wouldn't be necessarily surprised if we see her name get pulled out for further discussion on the Senate floor, particularly because we heard the Senate president bringing up some concerns. Hmm. Well, we'll keep an eye out on that. I also want to uh, at least mention, because you this is the, the final thing that you... Uh, Doug Stamper from House of Cards came oh, to Annapolis. Yeah. That's well, so. Ama- yeah. That's uh, that's my favorite character on that show. That it's always been my favorite character. I'm a huge Doug Stamper fan. Oh, I had no idea, Colin. Yeah. Um, Did you get me an yes. autograph? No, you didn't. Uh, well, I I mean, I just wrote about the fact that they released this <laughs> PSA. It's not like I saw it being filmed or anything. Um, but as you know, you know. Uh, always love mentioning this always love looking out for it when i watch house of cards but you know back in the day um in the earlier episodes when things were filmed in maryland um it's if you see the u.s capitol building um or various other things that's the state house that's the state house standing in so Mm. um the state house has always kind of figured prominently in that show and now in this case um doug stamper the actor michael kelly um Mm. actually stepped in and um did a PSA with Governor Hogan talking about um, a heroin and opioid addiction and getting help. Yeah, I would have paid a lot to have been a fly on the wall to fawn <laughs> over Mr. Michael Kelly. Uh, real quick, last night uh, you had uh, a really sort of touching story that I know you went to Dulles to get. Um, and I, I know that this isn't necessarily in the political realm, but uh First of all, I guess if you could give us a brief rundown of of what what the story is about. Of course, it's a family reuniting. But then also I was kind of interested to get your opinion on on last night just on a sort of human level, how how touching it might have been for you to be there. But you can take them any way you want. (laughs) Well, so it's definitely it's not Annapolis related, but it is related to politics in the broader sense. I wrote about um, the story and I've written a lot about the story of Fanta Juara this year. And Fanta is a Frederick County resident, um, Frederick resident. She's mom of two teenage girls. She is um, a U.S. citizen originally born in the Gambia. And um, she was with her family um, last year in April visiting them uh, for a prayer service in her 
um, home village and just to catch up it was the first time she was able to go home in more than a decade and that was a time of great political unrest in Gambia and um, she ultimately was stopped when she was near a uh, protest that was happening in the capital city of um, near the capital city of Banjul and uh, she was arrested along with uh, 16 or 17 others one of them included her uncle who was the head of an opposition party um is the head of an opposition party and they were jailed and it took a lot of um wrangling by the state department by outside groups by lawmakers um by her husband by her daughters who sent um you know facebook videos to other first ladies in africa asking them to step in and speak with the um you know the wife of the former authoritarian president in gambia yaya jame and asking them to step in and bring their own mother home and um she came home last night and uh, I was at Dulles when she arrived um, at the airport. It was a very touching moment. Yeah, was it, uh, was it uh, I- I'm assuming that, that it was sort of a, a jubilant moment, but for you personally, I, was, was it a hard thing to cover? It was very interesting. I'll say I got very, very interested in the politics of Gambia um, over the course Mm. of the last year. This really Mm -hmm. was a watershed moment for their country. Um, There have been two uh, presidents in Gambian history um, since their independence. One of the first president was actually um, is a relative of the Juara family. And um, the second president, uh, Mr. Yaya Jame, who was recently unseated, he took over in a bloodless coup. And, um, you know, ultimately was uh, defeated in a democratic election and close to a democratic um, transition of power. And it was just a really important moment for the country. And that was one thing Mm -hmm. that struck me when I was speaking with Fanta's family last night at the airport is they were talking about the day that um, the new president of Gambia, Adama Barrow, one, they knew she would be coming home and they just knew it was a matter of time and they were so happy mm-hmm. on multiple levels. They were happy on this democratic freedom of speech, you know, basic liberties level and they were also happy on the personal level that they would be seeing her soon. And it was interesting to me last night when they were celebrating the arrival of this family member that they also were going back to, you know, their country and uh, their home country and, you know, what is happening there and how important it is and that um, you know people in America should not take for granted that we are not arrested when we are protesting or not even protesting but just near a protest. That's what I was going to say. She wasn't actually protesting, right? She was just near the protest. Yeah, her family maintains that she was not actively protesting, that she was near a protest. She was scheduled to come home two days later and she was out running errands before you know preparing for her flight, buying things to bring home and getting cash and that sort of thing. Hmm. Well, we're glad to have her back. I think everybody, everybody's glad that she's home and safe. Next week, do you have anything you might be able to tell us? A little sneak peek of what's coming down the pipeline? I'm trying to think very quickly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Next week, we can talk about constitutional conventions. Whoa, is that like Constitution Con? Um, I No. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like Comic Con or no? It's I, uh, okay. I, just going out on a limb. The last one we had was like, you know hundreds of years ago but i'm gonna go ahead and say no (laughs) (laughs) okay fair enough and finally what was the best thing you ate this week what'd you eat oh uh so my husband listens to this podcast and he was like oh hey no pressure but uh he cooked me some delicious kung pao tofu that i brought here with me this week and that was definitely my best meal 
Oh, that's good. And shout out to your husband. Also, shout out to your mom. Yes. Who listens as well. It's mostly my family that listens. (laughs) (laughs) I was told I'm not allowed to be self-deprecating, so I will refuse comment now. I will accuse myself from commenting more. (laughs) Miss Danielle Gaines, how can people follow you? We like to say this every week. Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at DanielleEGaines.com. And if you follow me there, you actually will be able to see a Periscope video of the moment that um, Fanta Juara arrived to see her family at Dulles Airport. Yes, I watched that. It's a long video. It's, it's long. I mean, we didn't know when she was coming out. But yeah, you yeah. can skip forward to see the good parts. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. And uh, good luck this week and getting the work done. And good luck next week. We look forward to talking to you. Thanks, Colin. Talk to you soon. Goodbye. Bye. In Session is produced by Graham Cullen and Chris Sands. A special thanks goes to Kelsey Luce for composing our theme. Now be sure to hit subscribe on iTunes or Google Play so you can stay current with all the developments in Annapolis this session. Join us next week when we'll discuss the week that was in the General Assembly.